Exodus chapter 33, 12 through 23, chapter 34, 4 through 8. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for a human shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The word of the Lord. To be human um, is to be filled with desire. 
And I'm guessing as soon as you heard those words, something inside of you started ringing. Like there's something inside of you instinctively that said, yes. To be human is to be filled with desire. It's to be filled with longings, longings for um, things like love and intimacy or meaning and purpose or significance and security. Um, The problem is it's like there's this constant gap between our longings and our actual experience, which is kind of weird if you think about it because if this world is all there is, then our desires are part of this world also. So you would expect this world to be perfectly capable of satisfying the deepest desires of our heart, but it's not. Have you ever wondered why that is? There are really two big possibilities. Either, um, either the thing we desire doesn't really exist, or it does, but, but our deepest desires are things that are really outside of or beyond our current experience of reality. So one of my favorite examples of this is from the animated movie WALL-E. It's about um, a lonely little robot who lives all by himself on a future Earth that has been abandoned by humanity because mass consumerism has left the world covered in garbage. It's uninhabitable. So for the past 700 years, Wally's job has been to go around the Earth crushing the trash into little cubes until the world is clean and healthy enough to support human life once again. So at uh, one point in the movie, early on, um, after a day's work, Wally goes home to his trailer and he pops in a video of the musical Hello, Dolly, and the movie's playing in the background while Wally goes around tidying up the place. And, uh, and he's doing that, but all of a sudden, his, his attention is caught by a scene of a woman and a man walking through a park on a romantic evening, singing a love song to each other, and Wally just stands there transfixed as the man and the woman uh, take hold of each other's hands, look lovingly into each other's eyes, and they sing, it only takes a moment to be loved a whole life long. And there's Wally with his sad little robot eyes and his lonely little robot fingers instinctively clutching each other as if he too were holding the hand of his beloved, only he's not even aware that he's doing it until he looks down at his hands in wonder as if to say, what's going on here? What is this I'm experiencing? I feel a desire inside of myself for something, but I've never encountered it in this world. Friends, we wouldn't have the desires that we have unless there was something or someone that was capable of fulfilling them. We're in a series on the book of Exodus. and Last week, we began looking at this subject of spiritual renewal. The big question is, how does God become a living reality in your life? How does God become a living reality? transformational, personal reality in your life. Last week, we saw that it begins with an experience of really grief over the lack of God's presence in our life, but then it moves to a pressing desire to seek God. But when that happens, when you go to seek God, what are you actually looking for? What are you asking God to do? What are you actually praying for? This passage shows us. It's, it's all of our yearnings, all of our desires. This is it. This is the desire underneath all of the desires. It's the glory of God. 
Moses says, God, show me your glory. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's asking for. And that is the thing, the desire underneath all of the other desires that we're really seeking, the glory of God. What does that mean? Let's take a look at it by asking three big questions. Why do we need it? What is it? And how do we find it? Okay? Why do we need the glory of God? What is it? And how do we actually find it? Okay? First, why do we need it? Now, remember the story so far. Um, God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, but he didn't do it just in order that Israel could go live however they want. God wanted to be in relationship with Israel. He promised them his presence, his personal, intimate, abiding presence. The problem is while Moses was up on the mountain receiving this wonderful promise from God, Israel was down below worshiping a golden calf. It was one of the the worst things that could possibly happen. It was a tragic, heartbreaking, and catastrophic betrayal of God. So the, one of the interesting things is God tells Moses, all right, Moses, even though Israel has betrayed me, I'm still going to give them the land that I promised. I'm still going to give them victory over their foes. Uh, they're going to have military success, political success, economic success. They're going to have power and status and prestige and wealth. They're going to have everything the world could possibly imagine. They're just not going to have me. See, God is offering Israel the whole panoply of worldly success. They just won't have his personal presence. Now, how does Moses respond? It's really pretty interesting. Um, In verse 14, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you. Now, the you there is singular. God is promising Moses will have his personal presence, but not the rest of Israel. And in verse 15, Moses says, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Moses is saying, God, it's not enough for just me to have your personal presence. I want all of us to have it, because if we don't all have your presence, it would be better for us to die in the wilderness. But, but what Moses says next is what's truly amazing. God just said, Moses, you're going to have my presence. And Moses says, God, it's not enough. We all need your presence, but why? In verse 16, Moses says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, listen to this, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, God, if we don't all have your presence, what's going to make us distinct? What's going to distinguish us? How will we know that our life matters? Essentially, Moses is saying that all of the things that we would normally build our identity on in this world, that none of those things matter. I mean, think about it. What makes you distinct? How do you know that you're a somebody and not a nobody in this world? Well, we think all of the things that God was just promising to the Israelites, things like wealth or status or success or prestige or power or achievements, things like that, And Moses is saying, that's not good enough. All of the things we normally build our identity on this world, he's saying, none of that really matters. Now, you know what those things are that we just mentioned? Those are all forms of glory. And we're going to get deeper into the meaning of that in just a moment. But for now, what what does the word glory mean? The basic meaning of the Hebrew word means weightiness. It means that, that something matters that something is real, really real, because the heavier it is, the more real it is. So here's the question. What weighs the most in your life? 
In other words, what's most real to you? What's really real to you? We might say, well, all the things that God was just promising to Israel. We might say the things that feel most real to us are all of those things. It's, it's status or success or power or prestige. It's our looks or romantic attention maybe. Or maybe it's our family. Or maybe it's our achievements or accomplishments. Maybe it's a cause or a project that we've given ourselves to. In our culture, especially nowadays, a lot of times politics is what feels most real to us. It's, this is the real world. This is the world that we live in. These are the things that feel most real to us. You know what that is? That's your glory, because that's what weighs the most in your life. That's what feels most real to you. But as we just said at the beginning, one of the problems is none of those things have the power to really fulfill our deepest desires. It's like there's this constant gap between our longings and our actual experience. Or we could put it like this. All the things that feel so real are always the things that fall so short. All the things that feel so real are always the things that fall so short. This world is filled with wonderful things. These things are gifts from God. But none of them have the power to give us what we really are looking for. None of them have the power to really satisfy us. No one um, ever really put this better than C.S. Lewis. He was, it was one of the biggest themes in all of his writings. He used to say that we all experience a desire for something that has never appeared in our experience of this world, and yet all the things that we experience in this world are constantly suggesting it. So, for instance, in his great essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said that our normal strategy is to call that beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. But, he said, the things in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we've never visited. Remember Wally. Why does he keep watching that movie over and over again? Is it the movie that he wants? Is it the tender love scene? Is that the thing that he really desires? Of course not. The movie, the tender love scene, are simply arousing in his heart a desire for love. And, and so he watches the movie over and over again to keep feeling that desire. And when he's watching the movie, we can almost feel his pain because we know that feeling too. The, the yearning and the desire that's almost heartbreaking in its intensity. And yet we always want to feel it over and over again. So we keep going back to the same things too, going back to the movies or the books or the music or the career or the relationship or whatever it is because we just want to feel that thrill again. We want to feel that desire again because even to feel the desire for something is in many ways, in some small way, to experience the thing itself. And yet even still we know, no matter how much we desire it, that we've never really had it. All the things that feel so real are always the things that fall so short. So here's the question. Does that mean that our desires are just a sham? Or, or is there really a fulfillment for our deepest desires? Your heart says there is. So does this passage. It's the glory of God. The glory of God is the desire underneath all of the desires. 
It's the desire of which all of our other desires are simply messengers. That's why we need it, because nothing else will satisfy. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen why we need the glory of God, but next we need to see what is it? What is the glory of God? You know, um, one way I like to think of it is that the glory of God is like a beautiful jewel with an infinite number of facets. And all the different facets, they show us something unique about God's glory. You'll never be able to see all of it, but there are some big things in this passage. Let's take a look at just three of them. And the first is this. First of all, the glory of God means ultimate significance. It means ultimate significance. Um, remember the Hebrew word. We said it literally means weightiness. It means that something is heavy uh, on the one hand, that something has mass like a huge boulder. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But on the other hand, for something to be weighty means that it's important or significant. Kind of like when we say, wow, that was a weighty conversation we just had. It means that, that something matters a lot, that nothing matters more. So um, that's why when God told Moses, I'm going to give you every kind of worldly success you can possibly imagine, you just won't have me. That's why Moses said, God, that's not good enough because nothing matters more than you. So to begin to experience the glory of God is to begin to have an awareness of his ultimate significance, an awareness that nothing matters more than God, that this is the thing we really need in our life. Now that, by the way, is very difficult for us to do in our modern world because our culture pushes us away from this. What do I mean? Um, when God says to Moses, I'm going to give you every kind of worldly success you can possibly imagine, you just won't have me. When you think about it, that is precisely the mode of spiritual experience that is most popular in our culture right now. So for instance, there's a sociologist named Christian Smith who's done a lot of research and surveys over the past several years on the religious and spiritual lives of young people in America. Hundreds of in-depth interviews they've done. And when he summarized all of his findings and put them in a book, he said that the way that he describes the, the religious and spiritual lives of most young people in America is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, that's a mouthful. What does it mean? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, deism means that God exists, but he's not really involved in the world. It's kind of like if someone were to build a clock, wind it up, and then just walk away and just let it run on its own. Deism. Moralistic therapeutic means that as long as we're being good people, as long as you're not being a jerk to the people around you, moralistic, you know, that, then that means that God's job is to make you happy and give you a good life. It's therapeutic. You see how that works? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That means that this is a God who's never going to make any big demands on your life. This is not a God who's going to be like smack dab right in the middle of your life. Kind of like, you know, if you were to buy a big piece of furniture and then sit it right in the middle of your living room, everything else has to adjust around that. We don't want a God like that. We don't want a God who's going to be right in the middle of our life, and, and then we have to adjust everything in our lives around that. We'd rather have a God who's more like, you know, like a design consultant who's going to come in, help us live a feng shui life. <laughs> but he's not going to be right in the middle of our life, not right in the middle of the living room. You see, we don't want a God like that. 
By the way, if you want a great example of what this looks like in our culture right now, um, mindfulness meditation has been uh, incredibly popular over the past several years. That's exactly what we're talking about. It's all the benefits of spirituality, all the goodies, without all the demands of a pesky God who's getting in your business, getting in your grill, asking you to do things, wanting you to center your life on him. All of the goodies without any of the demands. You see, moralistic therapeutic deism. We don't want a God who's right in the middle of our life. Um, so here's the thing. Um, the more you begin to experience the glory of God, the more you begin to realize that, that, that unless you have God right in the middle of your life, then you have nothing. That to get this God in your life is to get God right in the middle of your life. And that means that everything else in your life has to adjust around him because nothing else matters more than this. If you have it, you have everything. If you lose this, you lose everything. It's ultimate significance. That's the first thing that the glory of God means. But secondly, the glory of God means personal substance. Let's go back to our Hebrew word. Um, remember, the word for glory in Hebrew means heavy. It means that, um, that something is real, that it has substance, that it has mass. It's kind of like, you know, if you walk into it, you're going to break your toe because it's real, and I mean really real. In other words, not only does nothing matter more than God, um, the glory of God also means that nothing is more real than God, and I mean really real. And again, that's also difficult for us in our culture because we have a tendency in our modern world to think of the things as being most real are the things that we can measure or test or quantify. And if God is a spirit, like the Bible tells us it, it, he is, then, then we think, oh, spiritual isn't as real as the material. Friends, this is telling us the exact opposite of that, 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 that there's nothing more real than God. If you want um, just a, an approximation of how this can be true, I was reading um, an article in a science magazine several years ago that really kind of blew me away. Um, it was talking about dark matter, and I had never heard of dark matter before. What is dark matter? Um, apparently, our universe is um, made, only about 18% of our universe is made of stuff that we can actually see. So, for instance, our galaxy, the Milky Way, Milky Way, is like a disc that rotates like a merry-go-round. And the only reason it doesn't fly apart is because of gravity. Now, um, the problem is there's not enough visible matter to account for the amount of gravity necessary in order to hold the whole thing together, which is why physicists say there's something called dark matter. It's dark because we can't see it. And yet, it holds everything else together. It keeps everything else from flying apart. 82% of the universe is comprised of this dark matter. And get this, it's five times heavier than any other kind of matter. I remember, when I read that, I thought to myself, man, it's like the glory of God. You, you can't see it, but, but it's heavier than anything else. It holds the whole universe together and keeps everything from flying apart. You can't see it, but nothing is more real than this. It's the glory of God. So the glory of God means that God has substance. There's nothing more real than him. He has substance, but it's not just substance. It's personal substance. So for instance, when, when God discloses himself to Moses 
In verse 18, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God has a name. He's personal. He's just not a nameless, faceless substance. He's real. In fact, you really see that in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. We'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. But for now, will you notice that when God proclaims his name to Moses, there is a tremendous amount of detail in there. There's an awful lot of information. When God discloses himself, when he discloses his name, he's giving us a lot of information about himself. God has a name. He's not just substance, he's personal substance. Now, here's what this means for our lives, practically speaking. It means that that to experience the glory of God is to experience a God that he's not just whatever you want him to be. God is not just, you know, how we say in our culture, hey, whatever works for you, whatever is true for you. If you say, I like to think of God as this or that, or I can't believe in a God that's this or that, you may have a God but it's not a glorious God. It can't be because there's no substance there. This is a God that you've made up. So um, first, God's glory means ultimate significance. There's nothing that matters more. It means personal substance. It's really real and it's personally real. Lastly, the glory of God means satisfying beauty. Satisfying beauty, why? When Moses says, show me your glory, God says, no one can see my face. In other words, to see God's glory is to see his face. Now, seeing someone's face means a lot, but one of the things when you look at someone's face is to see someone's face is to see their beauty. And that's what God is saying, to see my face. I mean, to see my glory is to see my face, and to see my face is to see my beauty. There is nothing that we need more than this. Why? When God offers all these wonderful things to Moses, success, power, Um, wealth. Uh, When he offers all these things, Moses says, God, it's not good enough. There's something I want even more than that. What is it? It's the glory of God. It's the face of God. It's the beauty of God. Now, here's why this is so important. You know, to seek beauty is, you never seek beauty in order to seek something else. Beauty is not a means to something else. Beauty is an end in itself. So in other words, a lot of times we'll go to God because we're looking for something, right? So we may pray to God. We might seek God. Heck, we might even obey God. But a lot of times we're not going to God because we want God himself. It's because we want something from God. We want the health or the wealth or the success or the romance or the family or the well-being or the happiness or whatever it might be. We'll oftentimes go to God because we want something from God, but we're very rarely going to God because we want God himself. That is a very religious way of approaching God, but it's not the gospel. Because think about it. What is beauty To seek beauty, you never seek beauty because you want something else that the beauty is going to give to you. The beauty is what you want. It's not a means to something else. It is the thing you want. When Moses is seeking the glory of God, he's seeking the beauty of God. He's saying, God, I could have all these other things, but none of it matters. I want you for you in and of yourself. To experience the glory of God is to experience the beauty of God. It's when you're no longer going to God for what he can give you. You're going to God for God himself. He gives you his face. He gives you his beauty. And the gospel says that he gives it to us by grace. It's the beauty of God. So remember Wally. 
Remember what C.S. Lewis said, we're constantly experiencing a desire for something that, that this world can't give us. We're constantly experiencing a desire for something that has never occurred or happened in our experience of this world, and yet all of our experiences of this world are constantly suggesting it to us, constantly giving us hints and glimpses of it, giving us little tastes of it without ever really giving us the thing itself. You've never really had it, but this is it. This is the desire underneath all of the other desires. It's the glory of God. It's everything you've been looking for. So in every romance, this is the intimacy you've been looking for. Or in every career, this is the satisfaction that you've been looking for. Or in every sunset, this is the meaning and the transcendence you've been looking for. Or in every family, this is the warmth and the love that you've been looking for. It doesn't mean that our spouses or our careers or our families don't matter. They're wonderful things. They're gifts of God. We should love them and serve them. But if you look to those things to be and to do what only God can be and do to you and for you, then you will suck those things dry. You will either find them constantly disappointing, or when you lose them, you will be crushed. And that leads to our last point. We've seen why we need the glory of God. It's because nothing else will really satisfy us. We've seen what it is. It's ultimate significance. Nothing matters more. It's personal substance. There's nothing more real than God. And it's satisfying beauty. You don't seek it because you want something else. It is the thing you want. But lastly, how do we find this? How do we actually find the glory of God? Let me point out two big things that are in our passage that help us find God's glory. And the first is this. This passage teaches us to learn how to pray for it. Maybe you were hoping I would offer you something more profound, something less mundane. <laughs> but if you'll notice, this whole passage is one long extended prayer of Moses. Actually, it's kind of like a negotiation between God and Moses. God says, Moses, I'll give you this. Moses says, not good enough. So God says, Moses, I'll give you this. Moses says, not good enough, God. Finally, God says, okay, what is it that you want? And Moses says, show me your glory. Now, unless you make the glory of God a regular, significant, and persistent part of your prayer life, um, it'll be very difficult to really find it. We need to make it a regular, significant, and persistent part of our prayer life. Now, please understand me. Um, God commands us to pray for our lives and to pray for the world. He commands us to pray for the things that we need and the things that the world needs. He commands us to pray that he would intervene in this world and actually change things, change things in the world. He commands us to pray like that. So for instance, just a little bit ago, we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That is part of how we pray. But if you notice, you go back to the prayer, you notice like the whole first 30% of the Lord's Prayer is totally focused on God himself. Before we ever get to a personal request for ourselves, we have spent a whole lot of time praying about God. We, to experience the glory of God means to learn to pray for it, to make it a regular, significant, and persistent part of our prayer life. So when we gather once a month um, at Unison, which is our monthly praise and um, prayer night, that's one of the things we pray for. And it's actually difficult when we, when we pray like this at Unison because, to be honest, a lot of us, we just don't have the vocabulary for this kind of prayer. 
We don't have the framework for this kind of prayer, but this is what we're praying for. It's the presence of God. It's the glory of God. It's the face of God. It's the beauty of God. It's praying for a sense on our hearts of God's glorious presence. That's, that's what we're praying for. We make it a regular, consistent, significant, and persistent part of our prayer life. That's the first thing. But secondly, in order to find the glory of God, you have to stand in the rock. What does that mean? Well, notice something. When, um, when God told Moses that he was going to see his glory... Notice that God says, you know, Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, okay, but, but no one can see my face and live. Which is kind of weird because, you know, if the glory of God is the thing we need more than anything else, then why would God create us with a desire and a need for something and then say, but you can't have it? So for instance, notice when, um, when Moses sees the glory of God, chapter 34, verses six through seven, God says, I'm a, a gracious God. He says, I'm a merciful God. He says, I'm a forgiving God. But then he turns right around and says, but I will never forgive the guilty. Sounds kind of like a contradiction. I'm a forgiving God, but I never forgive anyone. How can that be? The answer is back in verse 19. When God says, Moses, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. Notice he does not say, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. He says, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. Here's what this means. If God was, was all a, a God of justice, but not a God of love, then he's not all good. Because to be truly good means, love means that true goodness goes out and seeks people. It goes out looking for people. That's what love does. But if God was all love and not justice, then he still wouldn't be all good. Because true goodness never lets evil go unpunished. It's all about justice. Friends, for us to experience the full reality of God's glory, for us to experience all of God's goodness would mean to experience all of God's love and all of God's justice. And none of us could possibly survive that. It's too much reality. Too much reality. I was, um, I was reading T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets a few months ago. It's one of the great poems of the 20th century. And there was a line in that poem I, I just haven't been able to stop thinking about. At one point, he says, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Now, here's the thing, one of the things I love about poetry. Every single word counts. You know, in poetry, the, the, you know, there's not very many words. So even the tiniest word, it's important, it's significant, it means something. So you notice, he says, humankind cannot bear very much reality. He doesn't say humankind cannot bear too much reality. That would be as if, you know, every human being were like a glass, and you can fill the glass all the way up. Sorry. <laughs> Fortunately, this can bear a little reality. <laughs> but if a human being were a glass, this is like saying that human beings can be filled all the way up to the rim with reality. And if you pour too much in there, well, it'll slosh over the sides a little, but, but everyone's like a glass that we can be full of reality. That's not what he says. He doesn't say humankind can bear too much reality. He says humankind cannot bear very much reality. That's as if every human being was like an empty glass. And if you were to pour just a drop of reality and it hit the bottom of the glass, boink, it would be like, no, no, I can't take anymore. Too much reality. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. That means that, that for us to even experience just a drop of God's reality, 
just a drop of his goodness, just a drop of his love and his justice would kill us. No one can see my face and live. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. So here's the question. How is God supposed to be able to enable Moses to experience the fullness of his reality, the fullness of his glory, without it killing him? The answer is he hides him in a rock, he covers him with his hand, so that when his glory passes by, Moses can experience his glory and survive. In other words, the reason Moses can see God's glory and live is because the rock absorbed the full reality of God's glory without impacting Moses. Friends, do you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul has the audacity to say that Jesus Christ is the rock? Who is Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh. That he is the full reality of God, all of the goodness, all of the love, all of the justice of God in human form. He is the glory of God. There's nothing more ultimately significant. There's nothing more personally substantive. There's nothing, no one more satisfyingly beautiful than Jesus. He is the glory of God. And, And from all eternity, Jesus Christ always had the face of God the Father shining on him in perfect love and intimacy and delight. But on the cross, Jesus Christ lost the face of God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ lost the face of the Father. The face of the Father was turned away from Jesus so that it could be turned upon you in love and intimacy and delight. Because on the cross, the full reality of God's justice was poured out on Jesus Christ so that the full reality of God's love could be poured out on you. And if you think about it, you realize what's happening here. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Nothing matters more. Nothing is more significant. Nothing is more beautiful. But on the cross, Jesus was looking at you and saying, nothing is more significant. Nothing matters more. Nothing is more beautiful to me than you. Jesus is the rock. And the more you take shelter in him, the more you trust in him, hide in him, the more you stand in him, the more the full reality of God's glory will begin to come into your life as well. You know, just a little bit later in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, it's our benediction actually every week, he said that God has made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus. You know, when Moses saw God's glory, all he got was the back. He never got to see the face. In Jesus, we get the face. In Jesus, we get the love, the beauty, the intimacy. In Jesus, we get the acceptance and the closure and the fullness of everything we've been looking for. It's in Jesus. He's the glory. He's the desire underneath every other desire. What is it we sing in one of those Christmas carols? Come thou desire of nations, come. He is the ultimate desire. The more you see Jesus, the more you look for him, seek him, pray for him, pray for his glory, seek his glory, and see him dying for you on the cross, the more the rest of your life begins to adjust around him because he comes down in the middle of your life and rearranges everything because nothing else matters. And the more that happens, the more you begin to adjust, 
the rest of your life around him. You're no longer going to God looking for something else from God. You're going to God for God himself. And the beauty of the gospel is he gives it to you all by grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your beauty. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence. And we pray even this morning, Lord, teach us more and more how to pray for this, how to ask for this. Give us a vocabulary for it. Give us a framework for it. But even more than that, Lord, give us an overwhelming desire for it. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember, to see that we actually already desire it. We're just locating our desire in all kinds of other things. Help us to remember that you are the desire underneath all of the other desires and to ask you to be to us, to give to us the glory, the beauty, the significance that we seek. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.